On this Palm Sunday, we proclaim Christ nailed to a cross. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Welcome to worship, everyone. It's fantastic to see you. I'm so pleased that we've got as many as we have into the building this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are here in the St. Andrews building and also those who will be uh, watching online as well, joining us from home and or sharing later in the recording of this morning's service. Welcome to each and every one of you. Wherever we are, Jesus' promise to us is to be with us when we come together in his name. And especially on this Palm Sunday morning, as the Holy Spirit unites us all in this time of worship, we give thanks for those who are steering us safely through these next steps of emerging from the pandemic, those who are developing and distributing vaccines so that we can more confidently come together here in this place and other places, just as brothers and sisters are doing this morning across this land of Scotland. So at the start of our time together, as we, as we come together, let's just come before God in a, in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, on the first Palm Sunday, you entered the rebellious city where you were to die. Enter our hearts, we pray, and subdue them to yourself. And as your disciples blessed your coming and spread garments and branches in your way, make us ready to lay at your feet all that we have and all that we are, that we too may bless your coming in the name of the Lord. We know that in tender love for our human race, the everlasting God, your heavenly Father, sent you his Son to be our Savior. Lord Jesus, you took our flesh and you suffered death upon a cross. Grant that we may follow the example of your great humility and share in the glory of your resurrection. Amen. Well, this is Palm Sunday. And normally on Palm Sunday, we'd be waving stuff about, but it's really not, not that safe to do that kind of stuff yet and be handling stuff. So we're, we'll give it a miss this year. We're just glad to be able to come together. And Palm Sunday, of course, is the, the start of Holy Week, what we call Holy Week. And in our services over the past few weeks, uh, the online services, as well as the few that we managed to do here in person, we have been moving from Christmas to the cross. And our focus has been on what the Bible tells us about the events of this week, this holy week. So already we have been thinking about the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem which Christians all around the world will be celebrating today. And we've been looking at the various events and the stories that have been told during these few days. And we have seen how these events and images all point to the death and resurrection of Jesus. How Jesus was rejected by those to whom he came. And how they misunderstood Scripture. And how the signs pointing to the coming Messiah were all fulfilled in Jesus. And so we've read about Mary anointing Jesus with very expensive perfume. 
and the motivation of Judas, who, who so soon afterwards betrayed Jesus. We've been with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room as they shared the final meal together, as Jerusalem was preparing for the Passover and for the rest of the festival of the unleavened bread. We've seen Jesus washing his disciples' feet and Peter recoiling from that. We've seen bread broken and wine shared as Jesus gave these ordinary things a new significance, representing his body and his blood before he prayed for himself and before he prayed for his disciples and before he prayed for the truth and the holiness and the mission and the unity of the church that Jesus promised to build. And then just last Sunday, we walked with Jerusalem and the remaining disciples out of the upper room, through the Golden Gate, across the Kidron Valley, into Gethsemane, that garden where Jesus' final ordeal began. And we heard of his agony in the garden, his betrayal by G Judas, his denial by Peter, and the various inquiries and trials before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, and before Herod. So today, before we move on to the rest of the story of this week, let's take ourselves back to Jerusalem, as here we listen to, and at home folks can sing, make way, make way for Christ the King.
And let's hear our gospel reading. Mark chapter 14. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last.
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Over the past weeks, on our journey from Christmas to the cross, we've been following the public ministry of Jesus, from his baptism to his arrest. And along the way, we have engaged with some of his teaching. Last Sunday, you'll remember, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we watched his ordeal begin. Betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, subjected to the interrogation of both a Jewish and a Roman court. Now on this Sunday before Easter, we gain an overview of his sufferings and death, beginning with the story of Barabbas and Simon of Cyrene. It may seem strange to us that this most pivotal event in human history is, re- is being recorded when it's being recorded that we have these two little pen portraits of Barabbas and and Simon. Clearly, these two were thought to be important enough to be included in the gospel story, and we'd know nothing of them had they not been included here. And in fact, all four of the evangelists in the gospels tell us of Barabbas. And if we put together the different bits of evidence, it appears that Barabbas was a notorious criminal, a political prisoner, He had taken part in an insurrection in the city of Jerusalem and was both a robber and a murderer. In our terms, Barabbas was a terrorist. He is a prisoner on death row awaiting execution. And now the evangelists also refer to the procurator's custom of granting a Passover amnesty to a prisoner chosen by the people. I suppose the contemporary example would be the rather strange custom of the American president pardoning a turkey at Thanksgiving, even though the turkey is only guilty of being a turkey and not of sedition and murder. Anyway, Pilate saw this as a way to escape his own personal moral dilemma, suggesting to the crowd that they should choose this man Jesus. But to his great consternation, the crowd chose Barabbas instead, and they foiled Pilate's plan. 
It's hard to imagine Barabbas' incredulity when the, the cell door was flung open and he was called out, not to execution, but to freedom. Barabbas was, in a sense, not only released, he was redeemed. And there's a real anomaly to this topsy-turvy situation. The one who had given sight to the blind and had laid his hands on little children to bless them was to be crucified, while the ruffian who deserved a sentence was to go scot-free. The Apostle Peter in the, the book of Acts, where Peter's second sermon is recorded, preached to the crowd in Jerusalem saying to them that they had killed the author of life he said, while asking for a murderer to be released for them. Now, as often in the, is the case when we read the record of Scripture, we discover in objects or in events little parables pointing to Christ. And here in the story of Barabbas, we see more than an anomaly. We see a parable of our redemption. For each one of us resembles Barabbas. Like him, we deserve death. That's what Scripture says. We have all sinned and we all deserve the penalty of death. But like Barabbas, we have escaped death because Jesus died in our place. And just as Peter, on the night of Jesus' arrest, was drawn to the courtyard of the high priest, I wonder if Barabbas was, was caught up in the crowds and drawn to, to look at the cross at Calvary. Was he there? If he was, did he stand watching Jesus dying? And was he saying to himself, that should have been me. He's dying in my place. And if he was there and did think that, was his life changed? We don't know. But if he was, did he know himself to be redeemed? We're told that in the hours that led to Calvary, Jesus went through so many different assaults. He must have been worn out. He enjoyed several different trials without sleep, together with a merciless flogging and much abuse. And now by Roman tradition, he had to carry his own cross, or at least carry the crossbar to the place of execution. None of the Gospels say that Jesus stumbled under the weight of that crossbar, but Christian tradition certainly suggests that happened. It's part of the oral tradition of the people in that place. And it may explain why the soldiers laid hold of this man, Simon of Cyrene, which is part of modern-day Libya. It may explain why they transferred the cross to his shoulders, this heavy crossbar, compelling him to carry it. And that event transformed Simon's life. For it seems clear, as we read the rest of the New Testament, that he and his family became believers. Mark, in his gospel, identifies him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Obviously, they were well known to the church in Rome by the time that Mark's gospel was published there. In the book of Acts, we read of Simon called Niger, meaning black, a leader in the church of Antioch. 
He may have been the same man, and Rufus and his mother, whom Paul greeted in Rome, may well have been the same family. So at this crucial moment in the story of Jesus, we are given these little portraits of other men. Simon or Simeon, who carried the cross for Jesus, this black African man from Libya. Barabbas, a notorious thief and murderer. And also Judas, who betrayed Jesus in Gethsemane, as we heard last week. Now, we could say that Judas caused the cross because his treachery led straight to it. We could say that Barabbas escaped the cross, gaining his freedom at Jesus' expense. We could say that Simon, Simeon, bore the cross, carrying it for Jesus. And then we see something that's compatible with our Christian experience today. For like Judas, we have caused the cross by our sinful behavior and attitudes and duplicity. Like Barabbas, we have escaped the cross through him who died in our place. And like Simon, we are called to take up our cross every day and follow Christ. Let's listen and at home sing to our next song, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean.
It's been really interesting over these past few weeks to hear of folks getting their COVID vaccinations. Who would think that getting a vaccination would be such a talking point? And as the age of the recipients of these vaccines has gone down, there have been more and more stories told of folks' reaction to that vaccine. It's such an important moment in our lives, isn't it? And I've been able to read of friends in different parts of the world who are tweeting and Facebooking about receiving their vaccination. Eleven days ago, when I received that vaccination, the two millionth jab was given out in Scotland. I may have been the two millionth person. Who knows? Today, 52% of our population have received that first injection. And over 6% have already received their second injection. It's wonderful to think of the science that has brought that to us. And we all have a story to tell. Particularly if you were like me, one of those who experienced significant side effects. I'll not bore you with them. You've gone for quite a while. There will be many stories told in the coming years of these past 12 months and of these vaccinations. And it's rather surprising when we read the Gospels and we come to the crucifixion for rather than going into what we might expect to be great detail about the crucifixion, the evangelists say little more than Jesus was crucified. There's no detail given about the actual act of crucifixion. Now, in our mind's eye, we can all see the, the ropes and the nails and the platforms and the, the cross thudding down into the hole in the ground, but that's not recorded. It's from other sources that we know the prisoner was laid on his back, that he had his hands, his wrists, or his arms nailed to a cross, that the cross was then hoisted to an upright position and thudded down into that prepared hole in the ground. In the closing years of the Roman Republic, which preceded the empire, there was a Roman statesman by the name of Cicero. And in one of Cicero's speeches that are recorded for us, he described crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He added later that the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. So it's not surprising when we read the Gospels, and it's not accidental that the evangelists are very restrained in what they actually write of the cross. It was something you didn't speak of. We're given more detailed of what happened around the crucifixion. For example, Pilate had that title in Aramaic and Latin and Greek fixed above Jesus' head, which read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jewish leaders, of course, tried to persuade Pilate to change that wording to the effect that Jesus claimed to be the King of the Jews, but Pilate refused. And gradually, as the, the, the crowd of, of onlookers and sightseers thinned out, we're told that the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes. And the women 
watched weeping. Some priests and some lawyers also stayed mocking him. He saved others, they cried, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from his cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, so let God rescue him if he wants to. Now, part of what they were saying was, of course, literally true. Jesus could have exercised his divine power and come down from the cross. But what he could not do was save himself and save them at the same time. In order to save them, he must remain on the cross and die. So the cross soon came to refer not to this awful form of execution, but to the gospel of salvation. If that were not so, it would be a pretty strange thing to, to, to wear a, a, a cross on a, on a bracelet around your neck, or as I'm doing this morning, wear a, a pin, a cross on, on a jacket. It would be as strange as, as going around wearing a noose around your neck or, or having a guillotine dangling from your clothes. The cross is now both a symbol and the means of salvation. And so in his letter to the Galatians, the apostle Paul wrote, May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus' suffering, predicted in Scripture, coming to fulfillment through, comes as the, as the fulfillment of these prophecies, is emphasized and is at the heart of the gospel, every bit as much as the cross. Suffering was what identified Jesus as the true Messiah, just as today in many places suffering is a badge of his disciples. And Jesus had taught plainly that the Son of Man must suffer many things and enter his glory through suffering. He was betrayed and deserted by his friends. A fulfillment of Psalm 41 verse 9, even my close friend whom I trusted, he whom I shared my bread with, has lifted his heel against me. He was painfully oppressed and repudiated, a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And Jesus, we're told, maintained a dignified silence before his judgment. Again, a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, this time verse 7. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers are silent. Now, I don't know if that's true. Maybe our shepherd can, can tell us that. But he did not open his mouth. He was flogged. He was punched. He was slapped. He was spat on in fulfillment of Isaiah 50, verse 6, which tells us, I offered my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Signs of the true Messiah, the suffering servant 
of the Lord. One of the great sadnesses in modern Judaism is that these verses, particularly the chapter of Isaiah chapter 53, are so rarely read. They're not part of the prescribed readings for the Jewish people. And consequently, they are a people who still await their Messiah and they continue to miss the fact that he's already come. It's astonishing to see Jewish people being given that chapter to read and to see their reaction. They don't read it. They've missed their Messiah. And then in the story of Holy Week, the final player in the story of the death of Jesus is a man called Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was what we would call a senator, I suppose, a senior member of the Sanhedrin. And he had become a secret believer in Jesus. According to Jewish law, the body of an executed criminal might not be left hanging all night. It had to be buried before the sun went down. We read that in Deuteronomy 21. Part of the atrocity of this place of the skull where Jesus was crucified may have been the skulls and the other human bones that were just left lying around without that proper burial. Taking courage in both hands, Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. For crucified criminals would normally be thrown into a common grave or simply left to the dogs and vultures. And Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead, but the centurion on duty assured him that was the case. Consequently, consequently, Joseph, and according to John in his gospel, also Nicodemus, buried the body of Jesus, laying it on a stone slab in Joseph's own new, unused tomb while the women watched. And so the burial of Jesus became part of the gospel in order to test the reality of his death. That's what Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians. Jesus did not merely swoon or appear to die. Because Paul goes on to say, what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. As we go through this holy week, we journey with Jesus to the cross where he died, to the tomb where he was laid. And our journey over this last year from creation to Christ, from Christmas to the cross, nears its end. As we go through this holy week, may we read and see Scripture fulfilled. May we look and reflect on these symbols of old things being made new, of dead things being made alive, all in anticipation of the day of resurrection to which we will come next Sunday.
And may we and may our church be transformed and changed and empowered that we might share this good news, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A final song, there is a green hill far away. Today, as we stand on the threshold of the final journey of Jesus into Jerusalem and on to the cross, we find ourselves in the company of those who have gone before us on that journey. The great crowd who enter into Jerusalem are those who gather for the annual festival marking the feast of the Passover, and they come to remember and to give thanks for that enduring love of God. One of the psalms that's used in this feast opens with the call, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And in turn, the psalmist cries, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. 
In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem and welcome this one who comes in the name of the Lord with shouts of Hosanna and palm branches being waved. And the cry Hosanna, of course, will soon be replaced by crucify and the palm branches by a cross. But in faith, we believe that the enduring love of God shall remain unvanquished. So on this Palm Sunday, we stand on the threshold of a time of renewal within our community and in the life of the church, and we join the company of all God's people to give thanks for the love that endures and the love that conquers even death. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Our God, you have a love that endures. Hear us as we welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear us as we remember all that you have done in times past. And we give thanks that your enduring love has embraced even us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, whose love endures, hear us as we welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear us as we gather in the company of your people or in company alone with you. And we lift up our voices to cry, Hallelujah! Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, whose love endures, hear us as we welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear us as we journey through this week that is to come. May we journey in the presence of the one who goes before us, even to the cross. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, whose love endures, hear us as we welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord Hear us as we listen to the voices who now cry, crucify. And may we know it was for us he hung and suffered there. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, whose love endures, hear us as we welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear us as we wait for the dawn to break and for your enduring love to vanquish the darkness. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer and hear us as we pray together saying, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm hoping if our technology works properly that throughout this Holy Week we'll have short online reflections each day. So look out for them. They'll be on, on YouTube, but we'll post it also on Facebook and Twitter. I hope you'll tune in and take part at some point each day. And then next Sunday, Easter Day, at 11 o'clock, our worship will resume here in the St. Andrew's building and also online, wherever folks are watching. It's been great to have all of you here today. It really has. And I hope some others in our congregation who are maybe watching at home today will have the courage to sign up and come along also next Sunday. There's a few more seats that we can fit folks in. As ever, you need to book. You need to book online. To do that, you go to our website, keithparishchurch.org forward slash booking. Add your name and your contact details and your place will be reserved for you, just as it has been today. And booking opens from Monday till Friday morning. Of course, our services will continue online and recordings will be available later as podcasts and over the phone. And as well as the online reflections for Holy Week, you can also join with folks in the congregation in our congregational prayer time, which is each Monday from half seven till eight o'clock-ish. And again, there's a link on our website, creefparishchurch.org forward slash prayer. Click the link, you'll get through. So we look forward to engaging with the story this week, to engaging with each other in prayer on Monday, to coming together to celebrate Easter next Sunday. And until then, may the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen. We'll have some music as we carefully